Hello, Tome Show listeners. DM Samuel here. I just wanted to make a note that we recorded this episode last week before Friday, and Friday is the time when the big announcement came out that Wizards of the Coast was going to relent with their current plans, and they released the 5th edition SRD under a Creative Commons license and have said that they are not going to uh, get rid of the OGL. At least, they're not going to deauthorize the 1.0a. It's good news all around, but we think that you'll still get uh, something from this episode because it is definitely an interesting discussion. This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 356, maybe also 98 and some other accounting mechanism we're going to weather the storms of addition and license licensing changes and hopefully give you some ideas on how to come out the other side still a happy gamer welcome to the edition wars podcast where we take a deep dive into each edition of our favorite game we look at what worked well what didn't work and what was a disaster and we talk about it all and in this episode we are crossing over with the tome show to talk about additions and licensing changes and all of those that have happened in the past to see maybe what insights that it might give us for coming out on the other side of the currently impending changes and trying to keep our love of gaming so like look we get it there can be a lot of anxiety and consternation when the world's most well-known rpg changes additions especially after the boom in its popularity in the last decade or so. And honestly, I don't know that we can even say for certain that 1D&D is actually a full edition change yet at all, because uh, we don't know what it's going to look like at the end. Um, but this isn't the first time that any of this has happened. E- even the OGL conversation, uh, which has some new wrinkles in it, uh, because of course it would, uh, isn't entirely unprecedented. Uh, and it's easy to get caught up in those things and make it so you just don't find the same joy in your gaming life as you did before. Our goal today is to look at the past in order to help us make choices in the present uh, that might just make your gaming lives better. So uh, I guess let's get to it. First of all, thank you, Edition Wars, for joining us. I appreciate you, Sam and Brandis. Hello. Are you here? How's it going? Uh, it's going around. How are you, Tracy? Doing okay. Good. How about you? You know, it's uh, it's been been a tough couple of weeks. Uh, if you're maybe a professional freelancer in the in the OGL space, well, Harry. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, so I think uh, in order to really have the conversation about how does one go through this process and this change, um, it makes sense to think about how we've done this before. If this is a whole new edition, it is. At a minimum, the sixth edition. And that's if you don't count some of the early editions that weren't considered first edition. And if you don't consider 3.5 to be a different edition. Uh, So you could probably get somewhere between, what, six and ten editions, depending on the counting? Well, if you're not trying. Uh, (laughs) Because... All right, all right, so you got got 3.5, you got 40 essentials, you've got second ed skills and powers, 
Uh, I'm not even even not even reaching. Yeah, right. You got you got BX. You got basic. You got your full back me run um, with all of its like reprinting going on in Rule Cyclopedia, right? Um, I didn't even think about things like skills and powers and four E essentials as being other additions, but you're not wrong. It's so, 2.5. I mean, yeah, man, like, don't you listen to our podcast? No, I, I do. <laughs> but, so, and, so and, 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 and I, I regularly refer to Essentials as 3.95 um, because it was kind of bridging the gap. It, it was the gap that they should have bridged when 4th edition came out uh, to bring people on to, to that edition. You've got to see that. I think that it, not to get into the weeds on that, but I think that it actually was still a very complicated version of a fourth, just presentationally. Uh, so I, I kind of feel both ways about that one, mm-hmm. but I see what you're saying. Um, so just touching on sort of the, the, the is it sixth edition question, um, if we can get away with calling skills and powers 2.5, which we have to because they go on to call it third ed. Um, I can't get around that. Um, like everything we're seeing so far is skills and powers is more different from uh, the 1989 second ed player's handbook than sixth is from fifth. Then one D and D is from fifth. Right? right, but but here but here's my issue with that, and and here's why I hesitate with that is that everything we've seen from one D and D is a play test, and we have seen regularly with the the unearth arcanas and all that kind of stuff that. The, the play tests are a place where they're just throwing stuff to the wall and a lot of it doesn't stick. So we have no idea what the final product's going to look like. So I agree with that, but I, I think that they are starting with the bigger ideas rather than the smaller ideas. I think, I think we're going to see it trend toward a, a more familiar point rather than a stranger point. Hmm. I could be wrong about that. Uh, that's right. that's not. I'm still. That's a guess. My prediction is that we're going to see more of a five point five than than, a, and they won't call it that like they did for third. But. Here's well, here's here's what we're going to see. It's going to be sixth edition, and they might name it one D and D, and they might name it sixth edition. But the reason we know that that is the case is because they already are naming it something different. They're not saying. You know, at the beginning, they said, oh, the next next iteration of the game, the next evolution of 5e. But now mm. they have reached it. So we know that it's a new edition. And that's what they did with D&D Next, right? Like, they they said it was going to all still work somewhat, mm-hmm. but they called it D&D Next. They didn't just call it. Yeah, uh, we, we have thoroughly gotten into the weeds, uh, <laughs> much as Brandis didn't want to. Um, but but that is a good point. And, and, and Wizards... Have, not, Jeff, have you not listened no, to... No, I, I listened to every episode. <laughs> Although I'm still only like... I still have two or three episodes of the 12 days left to get through. <laughs> Let's say at this rate, Jeff is the chaos demon that disrupts our normal amount of getting into the weeds. Yes. <laughs> Uh, um, but yeah, no, you're not wrong, and, and I and I think I made this point when they first announced One D and D before it was called One D and D, and they said it was going to be completely compatible with Five and and whatever is well, yeah, but they've always said that every time I've gone through an edition change, or almost every time I've gone through an edition change, 
Um, that has been part of the conversation is them promising backwards compatibility, and they have yet to actually deliver on that, except with the possibility of 3.5 from 3. So, so you get pretty strong backward compatibility on adventures out of first to second. Yes, but I didn't. I wasn't playing the game during that. Okay, fair. Uh, well, <laughs> so, neither was I. Neither was I. I started but, playing in second. Or did a lot of people just? Yeah, I guess we buy all the books and we just uh, mash it all together. Well, and that's that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. Uh, and that, that that's a good transition to get us back to my actual guiding questions. So thank you, Brenda. <laughs> um, let's talk about the edition changes of the past, and I think it's worth starting from. Do you want to start OD&D, Sam? Because I think you're the only one with, with a lot of experience with that. <laughs> of course I want to start od Okay. So tell me about um, the transition from o, what, OD&D to 1? No. Yeah, well, so while, while OD&D was happening, Holmes Basic came out. And then BX came out around the same time as they were doing the 1E. And were those reasonably compatible? Uh, so... I, in in my recollection, and of course I'm I'm just a data point, right? I'm an anecdotal data point. But the people around me who played O D and D, when they switched to a new edition, they just switched right to first edition, right? They they used because the monster manual was produced first, so they used that in their O D and D game, then the PHB, right? And then they then they started sort of curving more towards first edition away from OE. But the people who were playing Holmes Basic, uh, the reason uh, Holmes Basic basically goes up to three levels, and then it tells you, okay, if you want more, go play AD&D. So the people who were playing Holmes Basic, a lot of them transitioned right over to first edition, right? The people who were playing BX, um, it was hit or miss whether they... A lot of them didn't play OE in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. They just played BX, and then they either transitioned to 1E, or they added some rules to from 1E, and then they just kept playing. Um, and then there's the whole group that started with Beckme, which is the Frank Mincer Red Box that sold everything, right? So those people, a lot of them stayed with Basic, but I know a ton of people who, because Beckme was produced in parallel with First Edition, they just mismatched, you know, they just pushed it all together. And so some people would have characters from BX, and some people would have characters from the player's handbook, and then they would just, you know, make it work. Um, the, the, the really important broader point there is that the community has always from its very earliest moments, been doing its own thing, and D&D is only notionally what's on the page. Right. Um, what actually happens at the table is mm -hmm. definitely going to be a combination of ideas developed over editions. Sure. Yeah, and, and well, and, and that takes us from first to second. Uh, and my, I started with second edition, but I also had a, a, a smattering of first edition books. And my recollection was I ended up, without even realizing it at first, I ended up using, mashing up some first edition rules in my second edition. And I used a lot of first edition adventures and monsters and stuff in my second edition games. Well, they, and I didn't even they notice. Even, they even released the Greyhawk Adventures hardcover book around the same time as they were releasing second edition, and they even put on it, compatible with first edition and second edition. 
So they were actually producing books that said you can use this in either one. Now, is that true? Hmm. But I mean, honestly, it's a pretty low bar if you're talking about an adventure right. or a setting. Well, like, but, and, making and that's, it not be compatible thing, is right? Right. how. Yeah, right. What could go the wrong? Thing, the thing about it is, you could actually use make second edition characters and just play first edition, but with second edition built characters. That's how close those two editions are. The yeah. formatting is different. The The way that the characters are presented in the player's handbook is different. The way that, that um, Thaco is, is a forward kind of idea right to the players, that's different. The way that the rules are all open to the players, that's different. But the game really isn't that far off. It really isn't that different between first and second. And I know a ton of people who just kept their first edition campaign and just when second edition came out, they read it and they're like, okay, but whatever. And then if somebody in that campaign died, well, when they made a new character, they just make a second edition character. No big deal. Right. And they all, and they all played in the same campaign and it worked. They're all playing the same campaign. I, I, I didn't even realize until I'd been playing second edition for probably five years that I was using first edition, um, was it, you could get like weapon specialization and, and, and whatever rules. I yeah. didn't even realize that that was a first edition rule until I'd been yeah. playing for a really long time because it was, it just yeah. worked, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. And, well, and some, of the, some of the most significant differences you would actually run into uh, would be, okay, how do, how does this specific monster work? Is it tuned more for first ed or second ed? Because that that would affect play, right? To some or, degree. Or I was mean, there a change in this one single spell, like yep. its duration or the way that it affects you know certain uh, creatures? Like your wizards can specialize. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it specialty sounds... clerics were also a big deal, but that's yeah. why I say. But it's not like I guess what I'm saying is it's not like a bunch of um, the people I knew, and I'm sure this probably happened at some tables. But the people I knew, it's not like second edition came out and they said, oh, we're going to convert over, take all our characters as they are now and convert them to second edition and then keep going. No, they just kept playing. (laughs) And then when those people retired or died, those PCs, then they would make a second edition one. And that was, it wasn't that big of a deal. So, so it, it sounds like if we could go back in time and completely redo the numbering, um, second edition is really more of a half edition from first. It wasn't a wholly new edition. Well, by the Unless end of second edition, that, yeah. there were significant changes, even okay. before 2.5. Uh, if you wanted to, I think there's a really safe argument to be made that Unearthed Arcana is your first ed half edition. Because right. it sure. introduced a lot of new ideas and changes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's still fully compatible. No one even questions that. Mm-hmm. No matter how much I rail against some of the stuff in Unearthed Arcana on our show. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the same way that you could take a BX character, right? Because I started with the X of the BX edition. That's actually the first D&D I ever played was X from the BX. Because they didn't have a B box. They only had an X box at KB Toys. Anyway, so... Uh, you got an Xbox? Dude, that's so early. I know. Way back in 1980. It was amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but uh, so the the thing is, like, you could take a character from Beckme and you could play it in a person who was running it with BX rules and you might not even notice, right? Like nowadays, if you're going to be all rules lawyer and you're going to look at the little minutia. But back then when we were 10, 11, 12, like we didn't yeah. notice. 
And even the later teen people that were playing, they didn't care either, really. I mean, the only time you would ever see a problem is if there was a spell that was different. Tracy, you want to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think one of the things with the numbering that makes it difficult is that somewhere in 3rd edition, they changed over to more tech-based numbering, where it's mm-hmm. like you've made a minor revision, and then you only increment that first number when it's a breaking change, versus publishing numbering, which would be additions, and any time you made some significant update to it, you would just call it a new edition. It's very obvious that uh, like AD&D 1st edition is... A total garbage number, right? right. It, it's only the first edition of AD and D, and you have to agree that that's like a fully distinct thing. But the other editions of OD and D weren't for sort of idiosyncratic reasons. So, um, but it was done that way to, from what I understand, uh, cut Dave Arneson out of royalties. Because he didn't get a credit on anything with an A in front of it. Right. He actually won that suit later and got some money, but it was That's good. then, you know, music had already stopped playing. So, so. so yeah. what I'm going to call the the modern age of D&D uh, was brought in then with 3rd edition, and it sounds like, from our conversation, we could probably say that's the first time there was a major change. Like suddenly everything that came before was no longer relevant without doing a bunch of the mechanical work yourself to, to convert things. Um, third edition was a, was a, a hard like reset. Let's start over and, and remake D and D from scratch. Is that an accurate description? I would agree with that description. Um, I think it is not really a coincidence that it was also coming out in the year 2000 kind of, Look, it's D and D for the new new millennium. Mm-hmm. If that wasn't on their minds, I'd be pretty surprised. My recollection of that as well was that third edition was actually really well received as a new edition. Now mileage may vary in anecdotes and and whatever, but at least the impression I was given is that third edition was pretty well received, uh, even though it was a complete like scrap everything you've got sort of the first time we had a scrap everything you got start over edition. Right. Um, but, but the alter that's because the alternative was the game goes away because the company went under. Sure. I mean, uh, that's not the, that's not the only reason. Right. That's not what I'm trying to say. My, my, my part ex- of the reason it was well ex- accepted and, and received is it was new and shiny and it was like, Oh, it's this, or it almost went away, and look what they gave us. They gave us this great right. new thing. Well, and I think, I very, think there's, people were very open to, to looking at it. I think there's two other factors involved as to why it was well-received. I think the other one was um, the long lineage of what was D&D had gone on a really long time, and people were ready for something different and new. Uh, right. the, the design aesthetic of the 70s and 80s was ready for a reboot, and the the community, I felt like, was hungry for that. Um, I think the other reason why it was so well-received is the significantly more limited reach of the internet uh, at the time, and the lack of social media, I think, made a pretty big difference. Like, my impression of it being really well-received was, 
all the people I knew were excited to get into it. And look, they ha- I was in college at the time. And look, they had these events where they came around and toured the campus and set up a tent and you could go play in front of the Memorial Union. And everybody was really pumped. And that's why I feel like it was well, well received. I don't have sales numbers. And there was no social media chatter about it at the time that I was aware of. Well, there was, though. Like, InWorld existed. Okay. But I wasn't right. involved, so tell me about it. <laughs> Tracy, I'm talking over you don't need to. You can finish that. I, I had a different thought about when we have a new edition type of thing. But oh, sure. Yeah. So, so uh, Ian World was, was created to be a clearinghouse of information about the new edition as it was coming out, right? And like, message boards were really sort of exploding in popularity as the medium of social media at, at that time, right? Um, it, you know, there was AOL Instant Messenger and other and, you know, IRC and other chat like that, but it wasn't anything like Twitter, that's for sure. Um, that, that was still in the unthinkably distant future of, what, like 2006 or something? Um, but, you know, I also was sort of very much under the impression that it was hugely popular, both because, hey, this is my first time being on a site this big and popular. Goodness. Um, and also because I was, you know, just going into college and uh, what was around people who were excited about it. So I had a community for a community more than just my own group for the first time. So I also have a very skewed view of that that might have no relation to reality. Well, there's two other things that you could look at too. If you look at comments in Dungeon Magazine and Dragon Magazine, they are overwhelmingly positive, right? Um, and then, and and you know, it's not like they only ever published positive comments. They they often published you know letters with negative stuff. But uh-huh. um, and then they, you know, there's the other idea of the RPGA running like living events, right? When they when they started the living events in three E. You know, those were extremely popular and they spread the game out really far and wide and got a lot. And keep in mind, you know, Wizards of the Coast bought TSR in 1997 and third edition didn't come out to 2000. So they had three years of learning what the products, you know, how they're being published and what's in the pipeline and what's going on and how people are really interacting with those products while they were designing third edition. And they wanted to make a new game, but they also still wanted it to be D&D. And then the other thing that happens, too, when we get a, a new edition is it's kind of like the reboots in comics. It's a, after, as an edition goes on in time, for some people, it can become very hard to enter it in, partic- enter into it, particularly if you're dealing with, you can only find a very experienced group of like players who've been playing a long time, because you can't always have that depth of knowledge and sometimes it's just it's hard uh you know the gm might expect you to have certain know certain things or everyone's expected to create their character certain ways and so you have this reboot and it, it can be less daunting um and everyone's a little bit more on an even playing field because they haven't min maxed their character for 10 years yeah and that's exactly why my least amount of experience is with third edition because of that exact thing that Tracy's describing, because third edition was built with system mastery as a key component to increasing 
the fun as you go on and play for years and years and years, you get better at it and better at building it and better at building your characters and better at being efficient and effective. And, you know, if you're playing at a table with five efficient, effective characters and you're a newbie and you just made a character, it's really hard to break into that without feeling like a big old damn fool. Yeah. And when, and when I was showed interest in playing fourth edition in part, because I was listening to those podcasts and stuff like that, one of the, the group that, my husband had already had a group so they were like hey it's a new edition we're not going to know a ton more than you and you might even know more because you've just read all the books so (laughs) so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so should we jump to fourth edition or do we want to talk about 3.5 for a second sure so so 3.5 uh came out in 2003 um and i mean it was a is very much a rebuild of the same principles, right? Uh, it was getting rid of things like classes having dead levels. A dead level is where you get no new feature of any particular meaning um, from that class level. Um, and, you know, if you're a spellcaster, a new spell level is sufficient, but um, otherwise, you know, there's got to be something at that level. There's also a major rebalance to some spells. Um, the, the rebalance to haste is maybe the most significant spell change in the whole book. Uh, out of all the changes in spells, that one might be the most critical because holy pork did haste break 3.0 combat right. in a hurry. That, 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 is, that, uh, is, that is my... I remember very little about my transition from 3 to 3.5, but when you mentioned haste, I'm like, oh yeah, no, that was a huge deal. I remember that. That, that yeah. stands out to me explicitly. Yeah, it stopped being a buff for casters. That, right. <laughs> that's a change, folks. Um, and so that also meant that uh, they were going to re-release the sort of cream of the crop of their earlier prestige classes. Um, so things that had been in Sword and Fist were going to get revised and show up in uh, Incomplete Warrior uh, or or whatever. Um, and, you know, I, I'm going to say that your sort of Sword and Fist, uh, Defenders of the Faith, Song and Silence sort of series of books uh, do really suffer from... Like, being really rushed out the door in in the opening months of this new edition, I mean, where third edition, be they, still learning to write it. Third edition, they were publishing like two products a month, um, and yeah, it's, it, 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 it's a it's amazing that I mean that anything was as good as decent as it was. Like everything was rushed out the door for the entire edition. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, go ahead, Tracy. I was just gonna say I remember like people in the early days of fourth, when I started playing, they would always talk about the flat books and all that stuff, like, and, and really worried about um, balance and things like that. Yeah. So I was on a similar cycle, right? Well, the difference was, the difference was that, that I think fourth was putting out a book a month, whereas third was putting out one general D and D book and one brand new forgotten realms book every single, so they were had two books a month. uh, And then they had Eberron when Eberron came out. They started producing a book a month for Eberron. So here's the thing about about the 
thing. So we're taught we just got finished talking about how well received third edition was, but when 3.5 came out, there was a lot of moaning because yeah. people had spent money buying all those one or two books a month, right? Mm-hmm. For the, for those 3 years and loving it, and now all of a sudden you're going to tell them, well, it's basically the same game, except we made a few real big improvements that you have to use. So ignore your third edition books and now buy all these 3.5 ones, even even though you've been, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the part of that that really sucked is that um, and, and I and I feel like that's one of the things they learned from when they did fifth is that really what those three years were was the playtest process for to, to make the game because 3.5 was in my opinion an objectively better version of the game um but they they made a bunch of people pay a whole bunch of money to play 3.0 in order to play test it so they could get to that point you know uh and i think that's i would say they didn't learn that lesson though because look at fourth no, well no i said they learned that lesson for when they put out fifth then they didn't learn the lesson until Essentials then because sure. they didn't learn it in th- with 3.5 because 3.5 also went around well, went on to become massively popular. And so there wasn't – after the initial blowback and a lot of people saying, oh, true. this really sucks eggs, right? It went on to be massively popular. Yep. And then when they came out with fourth and it was under a GSL, right? So now we, we get into the licensing issue, right? right. So then it, then it became this weird kind of – thing but if they had learned the lesson of the 2000 to 2003 then they would not have done fourth edition the way they did maybe what i'm saying is i think when they were putting together fifth edition they looked back at what worked and what didn't in terms of making the game better not about how it was received by the community and and those three years of basically playtesting third to get to 3.5 made the game better right yeah maybe um, and, and whether they, they explicitly thought about that or not, I don't know. But there was a lot of talk uh, around the development of 5th edition of them going back through the history of the game and what they'd done and what worked and what didn't. So um, it occurs to me yeah. that, that, that that concept may have come up. And 4th's playtesting, we know, I mean, I think we know, is, was pretty rushed too, at least for higher levels. So, um, But bo- both 3, and I know we haven't really talked about 4th yet, but... I feel like three and fourth both had the common strain of being a little bit more like a cathedral than a bazaar. So there, there was a kind of a, a real design that all interlocked together that was expected to. Um, and that's what, one of the key things that they did differently in fifth, but we can talk about that when we get to fifth a little bit more. So uh, we did kind of skip over one of the very early licensing fights. Okay. Do, do we I mean, to... I was going to come back and do licensing, okay, but okay. Given, given our timing, maybe it's okay to integrate. <laughs> okay. So, so I, I'm sorry if I'm getting this out of order. There's a whole big thing. The year, my friends, is 1984, and Mayfair is releasing the Rollades line of products, uh, not for your tummy, but for your D and D game. Um, um, and so, uh, what? they wanted to do was say on the cover that it was compatible with Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, right? Because it's 84. Um, and TSR tried to step on that and 
took them to court over it. They saw which way the wind was blowing and what the judge's ruling was likely to be from, you know, the way the the whole thing was going, and instead they settled out of court with Mayfair and sort of prevented a judicial ruling that seemed like it was going to say, yeah, no, you can just say you're compatible with Advantage Dungeons and Dragons. It's fine. Which would have made the OGL as we know it um, just a, a court Irrelevant. ruling in 84. <laughs> right. So that's kind well, of exciting. And right before that, in 1982, Judges Guild was using the generic compatible with or for use with mm-hmm. or whatever. And, you know, Judges Guild got threatened by Watsy or by yeah. TSR, uh, not Watsy. Uh, it- TSR, sort of famously litigious, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, all about the 80s and 90s. Yeah, they sue regularly. Fan content and all that stuff, too. Yeah. yeah. In fact, when I started my blog, all the guys in my group were like, you're going to get sued. That was like mm-hmm. their first thing. <laughs> right. No, and then I think that's, that's worth noting as we're talking about licensing now and we can start to bring that forward is that Pre-second edition, there really wasn't third-party content being published. Second edition, there were those very few attempts, and they became litigious. And, and however they turned out, they turned out. But but it was enough to pro- possibly stifle other people from even trying. Um, third edition, though, uh, which is the edition we've most recently been talking about, introduced the OGL. Uh, OGL, as it, as, as it has become very important to designate OGL 1.0A. Uh, 1.08 is 5th edition. Oh, is that 5th? Okay, sorry. Yeah, so it's 1.0. 1.0. So so, uh, OGL 1.0, which actively encouraged third-party publishers to publish D&D content, Um, which from the get-go did lead them down some roads that they were uncomfortable with, uh, like the Book of Erotic Fantasy um, debacle. Yep, which... (laughs) course is just uh, i guess because they wanted to be the ones to release the book of vile darkness mm-hmm. right this is me giving them a stern look well and um i think gwendolyn fm kestrel actually wrote the book of erotic fantasy right and she worked for freaking watsy yeah okay so like you know this is this is one of those things but let's talk about why the ogl like encouraged that the ogl yeah. encouraged people to create things for D when I say why, the the way it did it was by basically saying, look, here's our agreement. We're not going to sue you. Because up until then, TSR was a litigious company. And Watsi said, okay, we bought them. We're kind of, we kind of are them. We have some of their employees now, but now we're the new Wizards of the Coast. We are new. We make other types of games. We're also making D&D. We're giving you a fresh new D&D. And we promise we won't sue you. As long as you produce this thing and you say that in order to use this, you have to use the third edition D&D Player's Handbook Dungeon Master's Guide Monster Manual, that those are required to use this product that you're producing under the OGL 1.0. And that encouraged people to, instead of creating new games of their own, instead of going through and creating supplements for other games, because there was a vast explosion of role-playing games throughout all those intervening years. And instead of doing that, people can now freely, without being worried about being sued, 
make something that had D&D on the cover. Right. It's what's called the safe harbor uh, sort of principle. Yeah. Uh, Part of that, too, is that in particular, I think, if I recall correctly, uh, Watsi knew they needed more adventures. They need diversity in the adventures, and they couldn't produce enough for everyone. And they they were hoping mostly that the like in part they're hoping the community would produce that type of content so that people could buy it, but and they didn't have to spend as much money trying to develop that portion, unless everyone would benefit. And if they happen to do other stuff, that that's great. Um, which has a corollary, I think, because a lot of people don't necessarily want to create a whole game system. They just want to tell their stories in publishing. And thus, it worked great for them, too, because now they didn't have to try to figure out how to create a, a system from scratch. Yeah, it was the a win-win. demand for adventures okay. was high. Right. But, but also, the, the, the chance to sell adventures is low. Yeah. Like, you absolutely aren't selling more than one per table. Right. 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 Like, but everybody it, has to buy a player's handbook. So this was their reasoning, right? In theory, if, yeah. If there's 100,000 players, and I'm not saying there was, I'm just picking an easy number. If there's 100,000 players, every one of them has to have access to a player's handbook. And most of them are going to purchase a player's handbook. And one-fifth of every table is going to buy the adventure. So you've just cut your sales down to 20,000 from 100,000. Right. So... so yeah, about that other under-monetized thing we've been hearing right. lately. Yeah. Well, and that's assuming that everybody buys that adventure, and there's enough competition in adventures right. that the number is actually much, much lower than that. But still, right. every adventure that's published encourages somebody to buy a player's handbook. Right. But this is, also, this is also the addition that introduced the idea of the adventure path, starting with Sunless Citadel and running on through um, uh, Nightfang Spire and such, uh, Forge of Fury. Like, the, the, they were trying to get back to a central shared experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that also meant if you weren't playing that, you weren't buying any adventures uh, at, you know, in the early going of 3.0. They just weren't there. Like, well, and I, th- I think in the early days of 3.0, even under the OGL, it took other people a little while to really give it, a, to try it out, to try out third-party publishing to see how it's going to go. Like It was a trickle at first, and then it became a flood. But once they also didn't get what they wanted, because all of those third-party publishers were like, yeah, we know that only about 20% of the table is buying adventures. We want to sell them player-facing content, too. Right. Right? And, and so that's where the OGL glut came from. Sure. Yeah, and the, the glut's a big thing, because as much as right now I hear a lot of praises about OGL, and I know why, and I'm not trying to put it on, before, like, when I joined in 4th edition people were always worried that there was going to be this glut again and then nobody would know what to use and what not to use and people would just come to tables with things and be like, I want to use this totally on playtested, completely imbalanced thing and you're going to let me GM or I'm not going to play type of thing. The player player culture did not respond to the OGL the very best and also the OGL was absolutely brutal on mom and pop game shops. Yeah. Right who would get in this product that did not have the market that it needed to justify its self-inch. Right. So, so let's, we've, we've introduced the OGL, we've gone through 3.5. Let's go ahead and talk about the, the big transition to 4. Um, 4 was, it was simultaneously well-received and very, very poorly received. 
Um, and, and in some ways, uh, I think one could argue that fourth edition suffered because of the openness of the OGL, um, because it built in ready-made um, um, competition from people who just didn't want to transition and, and open the door for Paizo to start publishing Pathfinder, which was basically 3.75. Um, just 3.5 with some updates in some cases because they legally had to, and in some cases uh, because it wasn't covered by the OGL, or in some cases um, because they, you know, 3.5 was admittedly a little longer the tooth at that point. And I think that's a lot of the glut that we've been talking about. And even if you just played Watsy published content, it was still, there was still a glut of product and, and options at that point uh, and balance. Five years old, folks. Five years. Yeah, but five years with two books a month. Um, uh, sorry, sorry. It's actually four years because fourth edition was announced in two thousand seven. But that is that is so, a huge so amount of year, books. Last year, little content. It, it was. It was crazy. Well, and it that's was, it was honestly the, awful uh, how much they were pushing out. Wizards has gotten to the point with fifth edition the last year or so that they've been publishing not quite a book a month, but they they've been getting closer and closer. And every time they do, like, sure, I'm excited for new content. But every time it's like, yeah, but like. I remember how this song goes, and I don't like the conclusion. So. <laughs> yeah, but you know, at the moment, we know all the titles that are supposed to come up between now and the release of right. uh, whatever it is. I'll say one D and D, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually quite few. Now it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and, th- and that's that, that's another uh, indicator of a possible that it's, it's possibly uh, justified to make a call on edition change because that's not unusual right before an edition change to start putting out less and less. Well, so, let me, so let me talk about the 4E GSL here. Yes. So WotC had a couple things going on. Number one, they wanted to come into the 21st century and they wanted to create their own virtual tabletop. And there, there were two types of marketing that WotC did for fourth edition. Uh, Neither type very good. One of the types was, um, you're an idiot if you don't play this new version of D&D because it's the best version of D&D there could ever possibly be, and you're stupid, burn your third edition books and come over to fourth edition. Which it's never good to call the people that are loving your other products stupid for Well, and I don't think that, that was their intention, but that's definitely what, the way the community read it. That's the way the community took it. Yeah. It doesn't um, take much it, to go back to the, the marketing books they released and... Like start start going through and just seeing that the message is really there. It's too much. Yeah. So the second the second message they had was, hey, one of the reasons this game is going to be so great is we are going to take advantage of technology that did not exist at the onset and the, the original creation of the game. Right. The origination of D and D. This stuff didn't exist, and it's like the stuff of dreams, but. We are going to use technology to our advantage, and we're going to create a virtual tabletop like you've never seen. We're going to have official D&D art used to create the icons and three-dimensional creatures. It's going to be like a huge video game, but it's going to remain your tabletop D&D. Those are just going to be your visuals. You're still going to be playing the game you know and love. And... And we're going to make a character creator, and we're going to make a monster creator, and we're going to make like all these wonderful tools. We're going to do that. Uh, we're also going to um, formulate a community that is uh, supportive, and we're going to be helping out everyone. We're going to have this great new thing called Gleemax, and we're letting <laughs> them do it. And, and then a horrible tragedy happened, okay? 
a horrible tragedy happened. There was a murder-suicide that involved the lead developer of their digital stuff. And the problem is that apparently they didn't understand, the leadership didn't understand at that time, that you can't just give one person the whole basket. Because if something happens to that basket, all the eggs are gone. Yeah, in so, tech, this is called, you know, the hit by a bus problem. Right. And so this this is the issue. That's what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And because Watsi is such a confidential closed mouth group, it's not like they sang it from the rooftops. Hey, right. here's what happened. But what, I mean, what ultimately the, the, happened. The Tome show was in production at that time, and I didn't know the story. So And I was digging into this stuff right. a lot. From the beginning, though, basically the fans eviscerated them because nothing was on time. The tools that they did develop were not as good as what they had told. They weren't even as good as the premiere. You know, at Gen Con, they had these seminars where they showed these videos, these little promos of here's the actual thing, guys. Here's what it is. And nothing was like that. Nothing worked and nothing was on time. And in fact, the VTT itself was vaporware. It just never existed. The, The character visualizer, the VTT, there was a lot of vaporware because Watsi didn't come out and say here's what happened they just said nothing about it it just didn't get delivered and they had put two thirds of their entire marketing force you know uh, on that to make that be the enticing thing about the edition and so you had this sort of double whammy of bad marketing and this horrible event that all culminated in them not being able to deliver the things they promised and also having basically said to the community, you're stupid if you don't believe us that we're going to deliver these and make this game great for you. Meanwhile, they did not develop 4th edition under the OGL. They wanted it to be closed because they knew that they needed to be able to control the digital aspects of the game and their tools. Because the thing is, they had just learned a lesson in the late 90s about releasing a CD that contained all of the Dragon Magazine issues on it, but not having gotten the rights to all the art that was published in those magazines to distribute that art digitally. And they had a bunch of lawsuits about that, and they lost, which is why they can't develop that. They couldn't sell that CD after the first run of it. So there there were some real shaky boots over there about, okay, we got to protect ourselves, but also we got to make sure that this whole new digital, because, you know, yeah, we say Ian World was there and chat rooms existed and all this, but in, in 2008 even, yeah. a game company is not, I mean, non, non-video game, right? A, an RPG company, like... It's not, it's just not their area, right? So they made a lot of mistakes. They made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And, and there was definitely the push towards digital. And I'm sorry, Sam, I didn't no, mean to hit you. Um, but there was another part too that I think um, it, it was also, it wasn't just digital. Some of it was analog, like at table, but wasn't the tabletop role playing game. It right. was things like the D&D minis games mm-hmm. and the board games and stuff that they were trying to create this whole entire ecosystem that allegedly would go back and forth a little bit or that you could at least use the accessories between the games, right? They that were was trying, Yeah, they were trying to do like a whole brand support structure, right? And so when you made the Wrath of a Shardalon board game or the Legend of Drizzt board game, it came with these figures that you could use 
on the table when you played D&D and not just when you were playing the board game. Um, the problem is they, they stuck with that kind of brand. They didn't really try to branch out and do other things like they're doing now, right? Like the Watsi D&D brand now is, hey, we're going to make movies. We're going to do like nerds candy with freaking D&D stuff on it. We're going to uh, embrace it when Wendy's, you know, writes a, 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 a hamburger RPG. based, you know, RPG or whatever the hell they did. Or, right? or even the, the and, and they're publishing board games. But they're not trying to say it's all part of the same D&D ecosystem right, right, you can, right. until the Dragonlance board game. They haven't right, right. tried to do that. Right. So they're, so in 4th edition, yeah, they tried to like do these things to support the game because you needed miniatures in 4th edition. But they discontinued the miniatures line, so they had to bring – now they have just the, – the, they discontinued the miniatures game. Right. So now they had to bring in a special line just for the RPG and then you have premiums and then you have these board games. And so they tried to do things to support it, but it was all really expensive and everything was under the GSL. So all of the smaller publishers that were previously supporting third edition or Pathfinder really shifted over to Pathfinder because they had an agreement that they weren't going to get sued. There was no such agreement for 4th edition. Right. The agreement for 4th edition was if you want to produce something for 4th edition, you have to get written permission from us that you are going to produce this with our 4th edition compatibility logo. And even once you do that, if we don't like what you made, we still reserve the right to sue you. Well, and, and, and that... A lot and, of and, people were scared about that, and, and, and that's fair. And and, and arguably, um, I mean, I, I'm certain their argument to that d degree was we don't want inappropriate things like the the book of erotic fantasy coming out, and and so we want to have some control where we can say no, no, you can't do these things that are mm -hmm. are not things that we want associated with the brand. Uh, that was ostensibly the the purpose. Now I know that there were there there were third party publishers that published fourth yep. edition content, but not Goodman near Games. not nearly as many. Goodman and Games produced fourth edition content. Cobalt Press produced fourth edition content. Um, I wrote for Goodman Games yeah. producing fourth edition content. Ex My one time ready for them. Yeah, Expeditious Retreat Press. So there were some. Yes. But nothing like what you no. saw with third edition, and nothing like what you saw with fifth. Well, and you even Sorry. say you even say that Cobalt Press did publish fourth edition stuff, and they did. They did, but yeah. they published about ten times more Pathfinder stuff. Um, yeah, oh, sure. and, and, and I and I talked to Wolfgang, the the founder of Cobalt Press, about that repeatedly at the time, and uh, over and over again, I, I kept encouraging, "Well, give me some. I like your stuff. Give me some more fourth edition stuff. I'm playing fourth edition. Give me some more. Give me some more. Give me some more." And, it, and he's like, "You know what? We're we're going to publish the things that make financial sense for the company." Yeah. Um, and, and that's the I made the exact same argument in like the the Cobalt Press Facebook groups and stuff of people talking about well are they going to you know now that now they're going to do their own thing whatever it's like yeah but sure but if it makes financial sense for the company I promise you they'll publish whatever one D one D and D ends up being too yeah. uh, as long as I mean Wolf's a smart guy right so um, he'll and look at both what makes sense financially but also what makes sense legally and he'll he'll do that because he he loves the game too. And if I recall correctly, not everyone that published 4th edition content used the GSL. Some of them argued that the OGL gave them access to most of what they needed without actually having to, to do the GSL, which leads a little to the conversation of what's going on with OGL in the, today and in the future. Publishing adventures, that's pretty close to just correct on its face. Uh, getting into names of skills and check DCs. Excuse it, but 
I mean, it's a monster name. Come on. What do you, what do you care what the name points to? Well, yeah, and then, and like, with the other conversations going on, like, obviously they could still potentially sue you, but in theory, the some of those terms would not be under copyright because they're actually the mechanics of the game. Um, it makes it really clou- cloudy, and some people were willing to just say, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to them to try to sue me because uh, I don't think we saw a lot of that either, right? Um, uh, there were se- many cease and desists that went out. There were many cease and desists. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember but, that, yeah. But the, but the thing is, like, so it's the same issue with what the things that we're talking about, about the, uh, you know, if they deauthorize the OGL, right, is that it's not that they are, it's not that you're not right, right? Like, if I produce a, a, an RPG product and I sell it, and, and I'm, I, I believe I'm not violating the terms even if i don't use the ogl i'm just i'm using some terms that are generic regular words and i i'm not reprinting anything and i'm using you know my own language and i'm not reprinting the actual specific wording text of the mechanics i'm in the right but i have five cents to my name and if watsi decides to sue me i can't win because i can't even pay the lawyer so it's not even about who's right or wrong in the case of looking at, you know, how you can work through the OGL or whatever GSL or whatever OGL 1.1 or whatever they end up doing. Like, it's Wait. not about that for many, many people. It's about but, you can't get sued because you can't win because you just can't afford it. And and I think it's important because, and like, you know that I know that part, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's an important thing to point out, though, in terms of, with what's going on currently in the community, I know we're supposed to be more positive than this, but just in case, like the it arguing back and forth about what legally you can and can't do and and all of that doesn't really make sense because at the root of it is this fear of getting sued and the fear of the cease and desist and all of that stuff and knowing that somebody else just has this incredible power over you doing something that you like to do. Well, and, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I think part of what's happened, uh, we're, we're jumping way ahead because we're skipping right past 5th edition now. But, but, but I think part of what's happened as well is the fact that D&D has exploded in popularity in the last 10 years. Just at, like exponentially exploded in a way that nobody could have possibly predicted. Uh, there are way more people publishing now that haven't been through this, that haven't really um, dug into this deeply. They didn't read the license carefully. They just said, hey, a bunch of people are publishing stuff. I guess I can do that too. What do I got to do? Copy some boilerplate, right? Uh, and they didn't go in with eyes wide open about what it means to be publishing under somebody else's IP uh, and what that could mean for the future. And I think that's where a lot of that consternation and anxiety has come from is that there's a lot of people publishing and have been publishing for the last 10 years and they've built an industry, they've built uh, a brand, they've built you know th- their careers off of doing this um, recognizing that that um, you know you're doing it under somebody else's IP, and and that comes with risks. Yeah, and and so and to go back to the fifth edition part real quick is the reason why the OGL comes back in part is um, all of those missteps with fourth edition, kind of putting down people who didn't make the switch over, um, creating this huge rift in the community to the point where people would make like a lot of fun of fourth edition players and vice versa 
um, and all of this stuff. And so they wanted to try to bring the community together. And one of the best ways potentially to do that was through the OGL, right? So now people have the ability to create their content again. Um, this is comfortable and familiar, and we're going to go back to this 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 way of viewing ourselves. Um, and in still including things from across multiple different editions. I guess one of the questions I have is when did, did the was the SRD? Do we know like the page count for each version of the SRD? Because it feels like a lot more got added. Yeah, I don't have that at my fingertips. Um, so the, the other thing that made the uh, 1.0a and uh, fifth edition SRD so important is that they wanted to slow down their publishing schedule. In fifth edition, they had finally figured out that. A rapid publishing schedule means that you sell fewer copies of each book and you accelerate your progress toward needing a new edition. And they also right? need a lot more people on staff because originally yep. they were doing studios when Fifth first came out for a lot of the, the content too. Yep. yep. They used Cobalt, Deskwatch, and uh, Green Renin. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that as well like uh, since we moved to 5th edition 5th edition I think generally you could say was a very well received edition I think it benefited a lot from the the playtesting that it went through I think it brought some of the Pathfinder uh, uh, separatists if you will uh, uh, into D&D into &D, or at least trying it out um, I think it brought most of the fourth edition players along with them, and then it exploded and became super popular amongst people who weren't previous D and D players. Brandis, you were smiling though as I said that. So what? What am I? What did I miss? No, nothing. I was. I was going to say that if anything, you're underselling it. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think it is within concept for a game to be more well received than fifth edition. Well, no, but but I think right because it did bring back second edition players. It mm -hmm. brought back first edition players, you know, people who had played when they were kids and suddenly saw this thing was again and came into the fold. Whether they were active still in their first edition or second edition games or not, now they were involved in buying again. So I, I think that um, I agree it was well received, but I think that it was well received because of the playtest. Yes. Because people had the the two or three years of the playtest to get used to what this game was probably going to be like. Mm -hmm. And also, it was a slower burn, right? Like, keep in mind, you know, D and D Beyond didn't come out till what 2017, and Fifth Edition was released in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, we didn't know at the beginning, I think people forget this, but we didn't know at the beginning that uh, whether or not it was going to be on the OGL. They hadn't decided yet, right? right? We didn't know what was going to be in the, in, the, in the SRD, if there even was going to be an open SRD. Well, and so here's the thing, though. I don't think the receipt of 5th of edition originally would have been any different if it wasn't OGL. Um, and that's where I see some some interesting parallel. Like, like if the OG, if if they had published fifth edition under the GSL, uh, I don't think it would have changed the initial reception. Now it would have changed the growth and the exponential boom and, and all that kind of stuff. I I, I think that's true. Um, I think that the the growth of fifth edition is at least in part um, 
is ha- has to do with how the community can use fifth edition and yes. do podcasts and do video streams and play the game online and not worry about being sued. I'm not so sure that that would have happened. You know, here's the thing. Critical Role switched to fifth edition. They were playing Pathfinder first and they switched mm-hmm. to fifth edition and I'm not sure they would have switched to fifth edition for their show if it hadn't been OGL because Matt Mercer makes a whole crap ton of stuff. And I don't know that he would have felt free to do that if fifth edition was under the GSL. I, I don't know that that's true. Cause I don't know. I, I, that's I, why I said, I don't know. Have, not, having, I, having gone back to those early days of critical role um, and thinking about what they were and what they were doing and how they were doing it. They weren't producing a crap ton of stuff. It was this new thing where they were trying to thing out and they were playing a game. I think they moved to fifth edition because they were interested in that game. They, I mean, they started off in their living room. They didn't have a studio and all that. Right. Kind of stuff. It, it was his home game. Right. I, I understand that. But I'm just saying when you're talking about something ramping up and that slow burn, yes. you know, all of the choices matter. Right. And I'm just saying that I'm not so sure that it that he would have been able to do what he did with critical no, role. I, th- I think that's true. I th- if it wasn't under the OGL. No, I think that's true. I think it would have started the same, but I don't know that it would have gone where it, where it did. I think that's true. How much was he, I want to make another point eventually, but first, like, how much was he releasing under OGL? Because one of the other things that changed with 5th edition was the introduction of DM's Guild, which was a way to use even more of... Um, Watsi's IP in your own adventures with a more restrictive license. Well, I, I wasn't trying to say he was producing a lot of content and selling it. I just meant he was making his own homebrew stuff for his game. And because it, it's his stuff that he's making, just like any DM is, it's different, though, if you're doing that under the OGL out in public for all the world to see, right? Because he was, remember, they were on Geek and Sundry first. They weren't their own mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Which is just really interesting because some of the stuff Critical Role uses are things I don't think were in the SRD, like Melora. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Which gets really interesting with whether or not mm-hmm. like the OGL really would have mattered because... Right. Well, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. He, he also uses Torog, but he named them the King That Crawls. That's well, what's in... And at the same... And I, and I, I mean, we published this, this podcast. The Tome Show mm-hmm. came out throughout all of 4th edition under the GSL. We talked about our games, and we talked about their IP, and we used all yeah, those but, names. Yeah, but that's that's fair use, though. We weren't producing something to sell it, and we weren't making money. Right. Well, and he was, you know, being paid to create this thing, but uh, uh, it was very much just kind of we put a camera on while you played your game. Is that right. that's cool, right? Right. You know. Yeah. And, and I'm just saying, and I know people that did extreme, that during fourth edition. The extreme expansion of fifth edition is in part due yes. to a lot of people streaming and a mm-hmm. lot of people with, with or a few people with some very popular streams. And I'm just saying that I don't know that it would have been so easy under the GSL po- podcasts are fair use. Reviewing a work is fair use of that work. Right. Okay. I so mean, there were lots, there were, there actually were plenty of actual play con uh, play content being produced under four E. Yeah. Um, it's just that part of it, I think, was that the technology wasn't quite there yet. And most of it was um, more podcast style than video right. style, for instance. And, and it wasn't a huge moneymaker. So it didn't like when Critical Role starts making 
as much money as wizards on the D and D IP, then it becomes up it becomes an issue. But to Tracy's point, though, Twitch didn't even exist back in 2008 when D&D 4th Edition came out. And there was no you could do you could have map tools as your VTT because I did. I played it that way several times, but it wasn't fancy and new and you could, you know, Mm -hmm. project it out and and video stream it Mm -hmm. so easily. And then another big thing was 4th Edition often had the complaint that combat regardless if you're at early levels or higher levels it took at least an hour each combat and it was all based around encounters anyway and then fifth edition kind of changed that a little bit my understanding at least from the time i was able to play um you know combats could run a lot faster and the whole system changed to to make it a little easier to do theater of the mind or quick conversations and a few die rolls rather than the fourth edition system, which was much more of a cathedral again, and you still you had all of these things that had to interact together. Modifiers um, are much less sort of plus one minus one. You know, okay, I'm inside his aura that gives me plus two. Uh, kind of things that slow down combat by did I miss? No, I've got this modifier, this modifier. Okay, like that slows down play immensely because yeah. it adds up so yeah. much. And and you had the ability. They were hoping through the design of fifth to take more of, and that Cathedral versus Bazaar is something that often gets talked about in tech a lot, and it's about how you're architecting things, and a Bazaar is more, you know, loose APIs are, are ways to interact between pieces, but you can build something that matches better your situation, and um, there is a bit of that to 5th edition. There are rules that are optional versus not, and you can kind of mix and match, and a lot of that pulled from earlier editions, and I think one of the big things about the playtest was my understanding from having talked to people at the time originally was people thought they had to go back to third because they saw Paizo and Pathfinder and all this other stuff and this big content community there. And then as they were playtesting, they realized people wanted to be able to tell stories. And it's not that you can't do that in Pathfinder or Paizo. It's just that people wanted that lighter system that I think you can see paid off in a lot of stuff like Critical Role and and these big uh, actual play podcasts or, or streams or whatever. Mm-hmm. I agree with that, yeah. Um, so, so I don't think there's any any doubt that 5th edition significantly benefited from the OGL. Um, the degree to which things may have played out differently with or without it or whatever, I don't. there's no way for us to know. Um, I, I, I don't imagine a world where, where Wizards um, sues Critical Role um, for for playing their game and streaming it, but I definitely see a scenario where they sue them for publishing the Taldori uh, campaign book with Green Ronin, uh, you know, uh, and stops that. Sure, if there were no OGL, Green Ronin wouldn't have done that in the first place. Right, just no two ways about They're it. They're smart guys. Um, yeah, yeah, um, but you know, Green Ronin were very much. Uh, OGL publishers, let's talk about Freeport, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that goes way on back there. Um, although although I, I, I've noticed that with 5th edition, regardless of how big it's boomed, Green Ronin has been very hesitant to publish 5th edition material. And there's a few things they've published, but not much. Um, and and I, I suspect it's because they're smart guys and they possibly recognized early on the the sticky situation you put yourself in in by publishing under other people's IP. Well, uh, also they they have their own in-house engine now. Sure. Right? And like 
promoting that and creating content for it is very important for them. Fifth Edition was planning to slow down its release cycle, right? We talked about how they were working with other studios, uh, but they needed the community to pick up a lot of slack uh, because a lot of stuff wasn't going to be supported in, uh, honestly, the first three, six years of of the edition. Uh, if I recall correctly, the OGL doesn't actually... Like the 1.0A OGL doesn't actually land until 17, right? But people are already publishing uh, before that. Um, I, I include me here. There was a lot of just, I wonder what we can get away with. They didn't sue us yet. It doesn't seem important to them. Uh, I guess I, like um, the, the Insider uh, publication, the InWorlds um, magazine, had stuff going that like was violating the rules that were later set down in the OGL, but those rules didn't exist yet. And I mean simple things like referencing the hex spell. Right. Because as an extraordinary act of violence, the 5.1 SRD does not include the hex spell. <laughs> Rude. Um, but, but right, I, I'm just saying that they needed the... Um, the community to provide a lot of the content they were going to be very slow to generate because they wanted to, you know, have a much smaller staff and yeah. expenses way down. So we have gone uh, long for a Tome Show episode and very short for an Edition Wars episode. Uh, but there was uh, a premise to this episode that we haven't gotten to yet. So I do want to make sure we take a little bit of time um, to talk about that before I turn into a pumpkin. Um, and that is, I, th- I guess the larger point of this whole conversation, this last hour and 10 minutes of conversation, is that there is precedent for a lot of what's going on. Uh, with addition changes, with licensing changes, um, there is precedent for like all of that, uh, or almost all of it. Obviously, the, every situation is a little different. Um, and yet, and, and, and some of us have been through this, uh, multiple times, right? Uh, I've been going, I've gone through from second to third, third to 3.5, 3.5 to four, to essentials, to five, to now whatever this is. Uh, and most of you have similar trajectories. Sam's goes back even further. Um, Tracy's is maybe a little bit shorter. Uh, but we've, we've been through this, right? Um, and we all still love the game, to the point that we're here podcasting about it after edition change and edition change and edition change, right? We've gone through this through multiple editions and we still love the game and we still play, love playing games and we still get together with, with our friends and, and roll dice and, and tell stories. Um, how do we do that? after With all this anxiety and all the stress that this causes people, the, anytime you know, something they're passionate about is sort of thrown into chaos, um, it can... It can be a thing, right? How do you come out the other side and go through it and have fun the whole time? What do y'all think? So, so for me, um, there is a lot of emotional freedom uh, once the game is no longer an active publication for that edition, right? Um, so you can approach fourth edition in a whole new way if there is not going to be another word of official content ever to come out for it. Um, and so I am in a fourth edition campaign now um, that a friend of mine is running. Um, 
he has been running fourth edition steadily for for years. Um, so they've gone through multiple fourth edition campaigns. They just never moved to fifth. Never interested them. Um, wasn't their deal. Um, and you know, I am still waiting to see what comes out in the released books of one D and D. Obviously, Sam and I have talked at great length about each of the playtest packets so far, and we are replete with opinions. Um, but uh, my worst-case scenario is that my Orakesh campaign that I've been running since 2012 continues to run with 5th edition rules, and essentially our new rules... Uh, that matter for us at all other than homebrew rules, which of course we do create, uh, end in, you know, basically 2023. You know, if this is our last year new content, okay. Yeah, I, I had the same conversation with my players and, and, and when the whole uh, OGL furor was sort of at its peak, um, you know, that week of silence from Wizards when they when they just let the, the ball kept snowballing and get bigger and bigger. Um, yeah. Uh, I had the same conversation with my players and I'm like, you know, and I, and I told them, I'm like, I figure worst case scenario, you've seen my game shelf. I have more content than I can run in my lifetime. Like we can just keep playing. Uh, nothing has to change for us and that's fine. Um, you know, best case scenario, um, things aren't so horrible and offensive uh, to, to their community and the game is good. And, and I, uh, I, I've long thought, you know, at, at its core, the the success of the game more than anything else is built on the quality of the game, uh, and and we'll see what happens, right? Tracy, did, how do you how do you get how do you get through this process and, and not be a ball of anxiety and still find joy in gaming? So, okay, so first, I want to say I support my creator and publisher friends out there, and I do uh, see and. Um, want to acknowledge the anguish and stuff that they're feeling over this and I, I know we're supposed to get to the positive part um and I don't know how it's all gonna fall out there but I, I do want to support them so I will support them even if I end up still doing D&D stuff I am super excited about the possibility of in this opportunity of change in this one D&D that may come out that we finally do something that we should have done in fifth edition which is from the start a lot of the racism and other stuff isn't hopefully won't really be there i know they've had missteps recently i'm not trying to to push those aside but it'll be kind of exciting with this renewed interest in potentially the movie hopefully the movie goes well the tv series that i think is going to be on paramount plus and all of that to be able to introduce people to this community with hopefully a eventually very soon a system where you don't have to go and buy some book that got published years later in order to have the ability checks and stuff not be tied to race and stuff like that. And and I think they're even looking at the ability rate of like they're not going to have race in, in the new edition um, potentially. So I'm excited about that part. I also do worry um, with that if they're going to increase and get more money via using their intellectual property, how do they do that in that environment that often asks for um 
making sure that people don't publish things that are, you know, will cause headlines because nobody's going to care that somebody published it under the OGL. They're going to care, care that in, in that, in that document, it says Dungeons and Dragons, even if it's just the OGL language itself that says it. And I don't know what the right answers are, and I want to support uh, as many people. But if that's how I'm trying to get through it, yeah. <laughs> it might not be the best way. But that is what I, I'm I'm excited and hopeful for. Yeah, no, that that hope is why when all this stuff blew up, my response was, well, the specifics are different, but the general tone and tenor is is not new, and I'm just going to sit back and wait, um, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to cancel D&D because D&D seems to have run right face first into uh, the, the modern trend for towards cancel culture for a lot of things. And there are some missteps where they completely screwed up, right? Uh, and and I'm, I'm with you, Tracy. I support my, my creator friends who have been publishing uh, under the uh, third-party publishers and whatever as well. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. Uh, all of that is is a thing. So... My response is, and the way I get through it and still have fun is, I recognize nothing has to change at my table. I'm still playing the game that I want to play. I've got the pro- I got more products than I need. If I never buy another thing, that's fine. Um, but at the same time, like I've I've seen the furor before, and it usually isn't as justified as doesn't end up being as justified. Um, you know, but also maybe it's not. As doesn't end up being such a big deal because the Fuhrer was there and forced to change. And I think, and I think that's okay too. Um, I'm just not, yeah. I'm just not going to get myself tied into knots over it and, until there's a, it's finalized. Right. And like for me, for instance, there was that whole anger that was directed personally at me when I pointed out some of the stuff about how fifth edition came to be and some of the people involved in what they were doing to our community from our point of view so it's kind of hard sometimes to see the 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 blind like I don't want to call it blind hatred, but the just like that that major thing just is hard for me sometimes, and I, I can't I can't right now. Sorry. Well, I, I think that your point about um, a, a new edition that tries to create as, as clean a break as possible with the the racist elements of D&D's past in mechanical terms and in story terms. That's that's wonderful, and I you know, we'll see if the the term winds up being species or, or kind or something, right? There's there's still some indication that that's mm, a moving target, but it's not going to be erased. We're awful clear on that. Um, so I, I I am excited about that. I mean. You know, my experience is such that well, my, my tables can accept that change very piecemeal from everything else, and we're great. You know that that's that's no no harm. But someone you know, a, a game that people can, can come new to that does that is wonderful for D anD. d So here's the thing that's I was thinking about recently that's relatively interesting to think about, but. I have probably played more years of D&D not under an OGL than I played with an OGL, because I started in 1982, 1981, end of 19, whatever, and there was no OGL. TSR owned the game. You couldn't just publish something for D&D. It wasn't even a consideration. So from then, from 1980 until 2000, 
I was playing the game with no OGL, and then I didn't switch to third edition. So I didn't play the OGL version of the game, right? And then uh, I I was off playing other games, and then in 2006 or something like that, I went to go look at what was up with D&D now, since it's been, it had been five or six years since I had played it. And I saw third edition, and there were like eight bazillion books on the shelf. And I tried to join a game to learn about the game, and I sat at two horrible tables with different people. Um, they weren't trying to be horrible, but they had been playing the game for, you know, six years already. They had a lot of system mastery, and, you know, they they didn't welcome me because I wasn't a three three E player. So I basically stepped back and said, well, I guess third edition is not for me. I'll just go back and play my first edition again. So I played 1E again. And then fourth edition came out, and I went to fourth edition, and fourth edition was not under an OGL. And so when I played fifth edition, fifth edition is under the OGL, but not for a while, not for the first two or three years. So, you know, there's I've played a D&D that was not open much longer than I played a D&D that was open. Now, here's the thing. I still support, of course, all of my creator friends, right? I support those people who have made a living for the past eight or nine years or longer making, you know, third-party content for a game that I love. And uh, many of those products are just fantastic, and all of those creators are fantastic. But Wizards of the Coast has the right to protect their IP. They just do. They don't have to make this open. They do not. No, I, I, I disagree on that very strongly. Well, they, they, I think that deauthorization is. I, I'm not. I'm not. Wrong at, I'm not saying. Legal. I'm not saying they can deauthorize. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that's not. That's not what I'm saying. I, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is. Look, look let me finish. Sorry, what I'm ahead. saying is, if they decide that they want to put one D and D under a GSL. Oh sure. They have the right to do so. I, I they agree. Have they have the right. They have the right to try to protect their IP for whatever reasons they want. They can say just because that's what we want to do, and they don't owe us an explanation. They are a corporation. They don't have to care about us. Okay, That's true. However, I feel like they are shooting themselves in the foot with this entire thing because what they've basically said is, hey, you know that agreement that we've had for roughly you know, 15, 20 years overall? I'm just going to ignore that. We we don't need to do that anymore. In fact, I'm going to pretend like it doesn't exist, and I'm going to deauthorize it so that nobody can take advantage of it later because that's just what I want to do. That I don't agree with. I'm not right. saying they should do that or they can do that or that anything. That is what's killing them. But I'm just saying, from a company point of view, they have the right to put one D&D under a GSL, and I hope... Here's where I get to the point where how do you get through it and still love the game. I hope that they have seen the backlash for these past two or three weeks as a real call to reevaluate what they really want to do as stewards of a game that has millions of fans and that they do the right thing. And right. in my mind, the right thing is support the creators. Do not deauthorize anything. Put the word irrevocable in your new OGL. In make a way that it means something, not what they've done in the 1.2. Right. Make it so that you 
are still making an agreement with small-time creators and saying, look, we get it. You are helping the community, and we appreciate you, so we are agreeing not to sue you if you use the word dungeon or the word dragon or the word beholder in your product. So, so I'm okay with beholder being a product identity, right? Speaking here as a freelancer, uh, I, I think it's fine for Beholder to be product identity. Obviously, Dungeon and Dragon, they, they, they're incapable of owning the word dragon. I, I know. I was, I was being yeah. hyperbolic a little bit yeah. there at the yeah. end. I'm, I'm just making the point that yeah. if they start being really litigious, like late-stage TSR, mm-hmm. and they start trying to protect their IP, which they have the right to do, by suing everybody and their brother's uncle, okay, they are going to just keep creating such bad will with the community that nobody's going to give two craps what's in 1D&D or 6E, and they're not even going to care what they call it. Agreed. Agreed. I, I think that you know, they, they've been main character on Twitter for two solid weeks. They don't love it, but there's 50 more weeks in this year, y'all. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, vote with your dollars. Okay, sure. I'm not calling for a boycott. I'm not call- I'm, I don't do that kind of thing because... My my thing is, you know what? Everybody has the ability to make their own choice for themselves. And that means that if you want to show somebody what you support, you don't pay them if you don't support them. If you yeah. support them, you pay them. And, and, and we, we've jumped the, into the rabbit hole a lot. Uh, and I know it's all related to the idea of us uh, knowing where to find joy and, and or at least not let things bother us, right? This is sort of how we build our wall. Um, I, I agree. I think the um, the early the the one point one language to deauthorize um, the 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 original license um, was BS and and legally questionable at best, right? Uh, but especially because the thing that really gets it for me is if it it'd be one thing if if it was in the language or and they'd always talked about like we may at any point in time withdraw this license. But it was very clear from the beginning of the OGL that this was a thing that would exist in perpetuity to the point that a competitor used it to create a game that was arguably more popular than Dungeons and Dragons, uh, uh, Paizo and uh, Pathfinder, and they didn't stop that. That is not plausibly arguable, it needs to be said, because, and the reason, I'm, the reason I say that, I want to be very clear, is not to be a D&D fanboy. It is to highlight that Wizards has never needed to put its foot on Paizo's throat. It has always been a waste of its time. Sure. Because, because it may be competing for market share, but the only time Paizo came close to threatening them, Wizards hadn't released anything for two years. The studio went dark to make a new edition. That is sure. the only time Paizo competed. But but okay, so so let's uh, that aside. Um, if they if they weren't threatened by Paizo to the point of wanting to pull the license and and sue them to stop them from being a competitor or whatever, Paizo was at the very least taking a bigger chunk of their pie than any publisher that's currently publishing fifth edition material. But that's like saying like a flea bite is the same as being stabbed and losing blood that way. I mean, I'm not trying to say that Paizo was only like the size of a flea, but like, yes, they were the biggest competitor in the D&D space, but I don't think, I'm not sure they're the major corporations that the language was oh, talking about. No, they're definitely not. 
So like, and, and that's, that goes back to the thing. They're now involved in movies and TV shows and other things where they need a lot more language than the, than an open source license as written currently would allow. And it's going to be hard to, to navigate that. Yeah, and, and and I agree with you, Tracy. I don't know. You're, you, I think everything you said is absolutely correct, and I don't know how to navigate it either. But yeah, I don't and, work and, in the like, game industry, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not qualified right, to tell them how yeah, to fix it. Like, like I know everyone says like they can't deauthorize. That there's been mixed legal opinions even about that. At least in terms of can they stop offering it to new people. Um, so there's a lot going on there. I know why people feel the way they do, like to some degree, like I'm not, I'm not trying to say I totally know everything, but it's going to be really interesting. Yeah. And I like, for me personally, I don't see a future where we have the, the OGL 1.0A still and and be able to have the new edition come out. Um, because people just use it, and then the, and they'll still do the same stuff that they've done in the past. And and that's right. where that, that's the point that I was trying to eventually trying to get to is that that's the part that sucks. They publish an OGL uh, under an understanding uh, that it was not never going to go away, and you can continue to publish under it in perpetuity. Um, and now there was language of trying to, or still is language of trying to to undo that and in the meantime in the interim decades lots of people hundreds of people thousands i don't know have dedicated their entire career to publishing things under the ogl businesses exist if if they are successful in in pulling the old versions of the ogl out of existence they have instantly theoretically unemployed a bunch of people and and, that, and, and the hard thing for me is I work in tech where open source languages, like licenses kind of came out and there's been a lot of things. There's been incredible turmoil in tech over open source licensing in the past when huge things like, I believe if I recall correctly, it's MySQL was open source. Somebody actually bought my, the, like the, the source code at some point and then they started saying going in the future would have a different license is my recollection of what happened and so then we had a whole entire fork of MariaDB to, and then now they're trying to backport things like it's a whole mess and then things like Java they suddenly added a bunch of um, costs for older versions that and companies weren't always keeping up with the latest version and it costs a lot of money and companies had to make hard decisions. Like I like it came from tech and tech has all of these problems all the time and it mm-hmm. sucks. Yeah. Brandis, you were trying to say something else. I'll, I'll uh, unless somebody else is, uh, has something burning, I'm going to let you have the last word and then we'll try to wrap it up with a, a reminder of um, all of this causes a lot of consternation, even amongst us. And we all still love playing games. For sure, and, and I don't want to pretend that I deserve to have the last word on this, uh, but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, um, we've been interrupting you like I just did. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, so I'm. I just want to say that, like, it is a matter of record that Ryan Dancy was trying to burn Watsi's ships, uh, in in the way he wrote the the 1.0a and it was a 1.0 and. The lawyers working with was trying to burn Watsi ships. They were not supposed to retreat from the shore, uh, and for for years on the Wizards website, they said explicitly, you know, here's why we can't, you know, pull this back. 
here's what you would do if we pulled this back. Because in 2004, when they wrote that, they didn't have a concept of deauthorization. And so, like, I, I think that... Let's let's be clear about something. Um, Ryan Dancy wasn't trying to sink Watsy. What Ryan no. Dancy was trying to do was... I'm just trying to be clear for the audience. What he was trying to do was make it so that because they had just been through this situation where Dungeons and Dragons was bought by a new company and they looked at the financials of D and D and they were like, Holy crap, this is in a really big hole and this might fail. But yeah. what we don't want is for it to disappear off of the face of the earth and not be in existence and have licensing be totally bonked and no one ever could ever touch D&D again, right? So what we want to do is make an open license that will make it so that even if somebody has to come along and buy Wizards of the Coast, because at that time they didn't know if they were going to survive either, despite yeah. Magic the Gathering, okay? If somebody comes along and buys Wizards of the Coast, we don't want them to suddenly come in and say, oh, hey, D&D is ours now. We're going to totally change everything about it. Or someone or them deciding we're going to license D&D out to whoever, to whatever group that has some whatever distasteful ideas or whatever, right? So that was what he wasn't trying to sink what just for the audience, right? Because the way you're saying that is as if he was nefariously trying oh, to, you know, make uh, it so that Watsy had a problem. And that's not what it was. So, so I, I'm using the, the metaphor of burning the ships. Not That's not sinking the ships. That's preventing retreat. I, I understand, but I don't we're, know. We're not sailing back to Ilium. Okay. I'm just saying, like, just to be clear, because right. that that metaphor I get, but I'm an ancient history buff, so I get that. <laughs> right. Some other people might not, okay? Uh, For the record, Hasbro had already bought Wizards of the Coast when, my understanding, having watched that interview with Dancy, they had already bought it when they were doing the OGL. Yes. Okay. I was like, I, I, I know some right people had made a very stringent point yeah. that this was, it, you can't say Hasbro yeah. bought something they didn't know yeah. about yeah, yeah. because Sorry. Hasbro was part of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so he did say something interesting in that interview, too, in terms of he didn't know what was going to happen 20 years later. So there was, like, some potential wiggle room, but not in the way that, you know, necessarily that, like, oh, OGL would just yeah. go away. Yeah. Um, Only because yeah. he didn't know what would evolve in the industry. Wait. Right. And and that's the hard part is, right? There's now there's been this evolution. So what should happen today? I know he has his opinion. I'm not sure everyone has the same one. Right. Right. And and I guess I would oh, so so the outcome that I most hope for is uh the 1.0a continues to exist. Uh it is not deauthorized. There is no 1.0b. I can live with that. There's no 1.0b to incorporate an SRD of 6th edition. Fine. So you can either write into the 1.0a. They've just got to accept that as sunk cost. And then they release a 6th edition that people so want to write for because it's what you can buy, you can still get new books for that people make that you know, the, the third-party publishers make that leap of their own free will rather than a a, a deal that's all stick and no carrot. Yeah, that that is is a way forward for Watsi that does not go for the nuclear option of deauthorization, uh, and just relies on 
their capacity to generate amazing content. They have the writers for it. Yeah, and I think that's true. And I think uh, we're going to have to wait and see. And in the meantime, um, I'm going to take uh, a note from Sam and realize that most of my life I have not played under an open D&D, and yet I've been playing the game and having a blast uh, the whole time. Uh, and I'm going to continue playing the game and having a blast. At the same time, recognizing like there's a bunch of people who aren't just players, who are creating and publishing for the game, and they have a whole different level of stakes uh, on this whole thing, and I feel for them, and I support them, um, uh, and and I can I, I feel like I can do that, but also enjoy the game. I have one also final word to add to oh, that. Oh, I thought but I had a good conclusion, but go ahead. Because <laughs> I, I feel like I was ranting in my final thought thing, so I just want to say how it is that I get through this and still love the game. I know for a fact that there is a real opportunity here for some really good games to come out of this whole thing. Whether that really good game is 1D&D, or whether it's the Black Flag project from Cobalt Press, or whether it's whatever project from all the various different, you know, MCDM, like all of these other big mm -hmm. companies, big companies now, right? That's relative to RPG. <laughs> but like all of those famous, relatively well-known RPG companies that are creating new systems... Some of them obviously are going to be fantasy heartbreakers because that's how it goes. But there's a real opportunity here for someone to make the next best RPG that I'm going to end up playing for a decade, mm -hmm. right? And so I know that that is a possibility, and I'm looking forward to that. And, and if anything else, uh, I have seen when these things have happened in the past, and even if or when D&D &D continues to be dominant, the game of D&D becomes better by having the competition uh, and by having uh, the, you know, fifth edition is a better game because fourth edition had some marginal competition, um, you know, uh, and, and I, I'm continue to be hopeful that, that my gaming life will continue to grow and flourish and be happy. So thank you for sharing that, Sam. And I think that is the end of the episode. I do want to thank Sam and Brandis from Edition Wars for joining the podcast uh, tonight. Uh, where can we find you on the internet, Sam? Uh, you can find me at rpgmusings.com. You can still find me on Twitter, Lord knows why, at DM Samuel, or you can find me on Mastodon at DM Samuel at dice.camp. And you can find me all over the Tome Show's Discord. Just go over there. We're great people and we have good conversation. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm recording the audio from the Discord, but I'm also getting notifications of people posting there, which I imagine because it's coming from Discord will show up in the audio. So people will see that there is posting going on even as we're recording. Uh, Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, for reasons surpassing understanding uh, <laughs> at Brandis Stoddard. Um, at, at, uh, I'm on Mastodon uh, at Brandis Stoddard at dice.camp. Um, I write for tribality.com. My personal blog is brandisstoddard.com. And my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. All right. Uh, I also, speaking of Patreon, want to thank those who support the show by going to patreon.com slash the tone show. Those are things that then go uh, ostensibly into my coffers, but they go specifically into the coffer that helps pay for gaming stuff like the show uh, and keeping things going uh, and what have you. So thank you for doing that. Uh, it, um, yeah. And if you'd like to reach us, uh, we are 
you can email us thetomeshow at gmail.com you can find me on twitter because i don't have enough time to move anywhere else yet at sarah dark magic you can find jeff at, at squatch on twitter s-q-u-a-c-h or squatch at dice.camp and you find the tome show on twitter at the tome show yeah, no. Mastodon has been fine uh, getting uh, now that I'm on there, but it did take me about two weeks to, to grok the process of just getting on to Mastodon. It was way too difficult. Um, but it's fine now that I'm there, so there we are. Uh, anyway, we're going to call that episode 356. I mean, uh, number 98. Uh, uh, no, no, number 356. Where we found joy in the chaos of uncertainty in this episode of The Tone, 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 the